Hey folks, welcome to In Context Theology. I've decided in this episode I'm not going to waste any time with any stupid banter. We're going to get right to the to the heart of it. Uh, if you're jumping in, this is episode two on the councils. Um, you know, Lindley, I was walking down the street the other day and I was thinking to myself about councils. I can't not I can't not banter at the beginning. Okay, so <laughs> so this is the sequel to part one. Uh, what's your favorite sequel movie? Movies. I would. I really enjoyed Terminator Two. After yeah, Terminator, okay. I thought that was a good one. Um, good choice. Kind of falls apart after that for me. A lot of you know. Look, I like the Star Wars series, but nothing beats the first one. I you know mm-hmm. I enjoyed Lord of the Rings, but then after a while, traipsing through endless amounts of snow, watching <laughs> elves and uh, you know um, other little hobbits. Uh, kind of yeah. wore me out. Um, no, I think there's very few that are successful. Um, the Godfather series was quite good, from what I understand. Yeah. You know, um, French Connection was pretty decent, but yeah, generally sequels. You know, with the uh, Lord of the Rings stuff, I love the first three. I, I, they've been on my watch list for like five years now. I'm like, I'm, <laughs> I'm gonna watch those again. Yeah, I'm ready to watch Lord of the Rings. <laughs> I just can't do it because it's such a time commitment. I'm like, do I want to give 12 hours of my life to this series? And then the <laughs> Hobbit movies. I'm, yeah, I'm like. These things need to end. It's just one book. It just keeps going. <laughs> so anyway, in the in the honor of the sequels, uh, this episode probably won't be as good as the first one. Uh, no, this is uh, part two of possibly part three, uh, or three parts, maybe four. We're going to see how this goes. But um, if you missed the last episode, you should go back and listen to that one first. Uh, hit pause on your tape player if you're my dad <laughs> listening to this. And then um, go back and listen to part one. But uh, we're going to get into today what uh, the seven ecumenical councils are. And then we'll cover a few of those. And with another part, we'll probably cover the rest of them. So, Linda, let's jump in. Just a quick r- brief r- reminder of what the councils were. And then we'll jump into what the seven ecumenical councils were. Am I saying that word right? Ecumenical? Yeah, brilliant. Uh, well done. Yeah. I mean, if if all these podcasts have culminated in you <laughs> pronouncing the word ecumenical correctly, then I think we've accomplished quite That's the it. goal in life. We're going to yes. shut it down now, folks. <laughs> That's we've, right. we've done it. Right. So, so, yeah, just think of councils basically as like a synod or an assembly of, of the clergy who basically are setting about to do the right thing. And that's probably the best way and the simplest way I could um, um, start. But let's take a look at the seven ecumenical councils. And what we mean by ecumenical here is is broad agreements across various groups and and, and, and individuals, um, powerful, important individuals, as well as broad groups of, with people who in different geographical areas who had um, a congruence of ideas, sometimes a disagreement of ideas, and how they then solve that. And they came together, and that's what the ecumenical aspect is, is them coming together, uh, trying to bring about unity. Um, gotcha. Right, so... These ecumenical councils are unique and special for, for several reasons. The first one we think about here is the idea of settling issues of faith, right? Now, this is critical. This is their fundamental, I believe, purpose and goal. The ecumenical councils were convened to settle issues of faith among, this, like I said, these diverse geographical areas and Christian groups. Um, these are culturally influenced. You know, you think of what a location, the cultural influences that are happening, the sociological changes that are taking place, the ideological views that they held, you know, whether they worship different gods, whether they were part of a trade route, which brought ideas from different parts of the world, east, west, north, south, whether they were, uh, had a, had a, some sort of a, like a, what, an early form of an university, you know, we, we don't think of the modern university, but we think of an early yeah. place where learning was taking place. Ideas popped up within there and people had different ideas about how the world should function, how the world should work, how politics and how 
the economy should work no different than today and we have differing views and, and we realize and we see it today how these differing views affect our belief systems yeah right there is an import of what we believe about the general world unfortunately sometime back into the sacred world and so again th so these councils set about to say what are the critical and most important aspects of our faith belief? What is it that we cannot give up on? What can we give up on? What should we jettison because it's wrong? And and then therefore, how do we protect ourselves because of mm -hmm. all these things floating around us? And so, this is and, and the councils are an extension of what the apostles were doing since day one. Really, it's like what do we believe about exactly this you know how do we okay i think we should care about the poor uh should you can they eat food sacrifice uh, you know like they're working these things out uh, and yes. especially in this era the bible was not readily available to everybody so they were highly um dependent upon i guess it would be priests or other clergy of however type uh yes. to, so you you bear another responsibility of like i am not only teaching the word i am the sole source of the word of god that's for correct. all these people so they they took it with a um you know high reverence i, I would say oh absolutely this was this was uh, a, a, of great importance to them this wasn't trivial this wasn't something they could do i mean you know much we, like carrying the ring to mordor <laughs> i guess that would be the analogy then yes yeah there you go bring um, it back I, I think what's interesting here is that you know you, you use the word bible and, and when we think of the word bible we think as if somehow we're so used to reading writing uh, having readily available these texts around us and before us, um, we almost treat it with a certain amount of disdain when we see, walk into a place and see a Bible. It's like, oh, another Bible and so forth. Yep. But the fact is, is that, you know, if you go back 1700 years and we're, you know, we're going back to, you know, like cons uh, the first council of Nicaea, 325, as the first council, uh, major council, ecumenical council, you're, you're really thinking about here, like, the average person doesn't really read. <laughs> the average person yeah. doesn't really have texts that they go and hold on to. The average person is subsistence living. They are not, they really aren't, you know, they're dependent upon an educated clergy to a large degree to communicate effectively. There is no Bible. There's no codified texts, right? Mm -hmm. Now, I, I want to temper that a little, and I, and I always say this because it's important. There were important texts. There were less important texts. And they were texts that really were of no value. And the community as a whole started to, as they read through them, give weight to some and less weight to others. And that's why we kind of see as the development of that, we understand why some books, you can find like hundreds of copies of it and others you can find maybe one or two copies or fragments, if any at all, right? Mm -hmm. Some of them are just being, there is a book by so-and-so and you're like, oh, I've heard of that. Is there any actual text? No, we just know about it because it's referenced by someone else, but the text no longer exists and its value has been maybe not as great as some as as the general populace uh, took it to be, Christian yeah. populace. So um, they were they were largely educated throughout like oral history and that kind of stuff. Can, yes. You know, there's a keeper of the secrets of the your culture, the, the historians, that kind of stuff. Man, what an awesome time when Everyone couldn't just do their own research, <laughs> come up with some theory. Ah, can we get back to that? That'd be great. No, um, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. Mm -hmm. I guess Absolutely. you could say. Um, right. And so, yeah, that. So we're setting the scene of they're working things out. They are highly dependent on a select few group of people, which obviously later becomes a problem. You know, during the Martin Luther era, the cat, you know, all that kind of stuff, manipulating if you didn't speak Latin, all that kind of stuff. Um, but these counselors are so interesting to me because of the the gravity of the situation the way they went about it and the the 
the debates, the healthy debates, the I'm sure there's many stories of fist fights breaking out. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know, but um, you know, they, they, this was a real serious thing that is more than just a Twitter war of like we're gonna argue with each other and then go our separate ways and nobody's gonna and whatever you stick with your opinion, I'll stick with mine. That couldn't happen at these. There had to be some conclusion. Yeah, there's very little agree to disagree. Yeah. <laughs> there, yeah. There's right and wrong here. Um, and they're called out. There are clear lines in the sand because these are important moments. And I think what's really important here we need to realize is I understand that there is a council. I understand there's a lot of learned people there with people with varying ideas and so forth. But let me, as a Christian, as a believer in Christ, I have to also believe with great confidence that God is in the midst of this as well ensuring that the right things are taught and the wrong things are jettisoned. That's is, my that's my belief too. Yeah. yeah, this is not happening in of its own path and its own track. God is intimately involved in ensuring that these people are doing the right thing. Now, yeah. it unfolds in a human form, it unfolds in a in a way that is purely human. Um, but let's be clear though, God is still invested in this process. This is this is his part of what he did and this is what the church did uh, and so i think it's really important to always remember that as well yeah um so they went about also defining creeds and dogmas so they play a crucial crucial role in making sure that we understand you know when, when we think about the apostles creed or the nicene creed that those are crisp and clear and accurate to a large degree um yeah. they made sure that heresies um were tossed out and that the orthodox doctrine of the church is maintained integrity is extremely important but this is also important at the same time. Unity amongst the people, amongst the council participants, among the Christian groups as the world was unfolding was also important. So this is yeah. not just about being intellectually correct. This is also about being from a relational aspect that the, that the group over in, you know, Asia Minor East and the part and the and the folks over in Rome and the folks over in North Africa and the folks over in Jerusalem all these different areas we want unity amongst that that is something that we still desire that Christ desires for his body of believers as the church is unity so you know they did go about um, that was an important aspect on what they did and mm. then finally they 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 did have to kind of try to understand <clears throat> that the world that the church is no longer a community in a particular community, but that the church is bigger than that and that the meeting of bishops helps each other at that level to understand the world in which they operated, what were the what were the problems they were going through and what, what they had to what they had to deal with, whether it was persecution in some areas and whether it was like doctrinal things they had to fight, that there was that unity and and therefore that this was going to be a global church. They weren't they weren't just limited to their own little, you know, um, cul-de-sac at the end of the street. So it's mm -hmm. it's important to understand that. Yeah, for sure. So let's jump into the first of these councils would have been the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. Well, this is the big one, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> because this one actually kicks off by Constantine himself. And, and Emperor Constantine wants to bring unity amongst the believers. Now, there are conflicting views, um, but the majority of historians, the majority of theologians, the majority of, 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 of uh, philosophy of history uh, individuals will will take the point that I take, which is that that Constantine basically convened this because he had a genuine conversion to Christianity, and ultimately he wanted to bring, he knew the value of knowing Christ, and as such wanted that for the world in which he lived, not for himself only, but for everyone. 
So he, he convenes this council, and the big, big, of course, this is the one everyone knows, is the Arian controversy, right? This is the big deal. This is the question of who is Jesus Christ, right? Mm -hmm. And, and the, this is a difficult thing for people to understand. And even to this day, if you talk to a Muslim, they don't understand the role of Jesus, the role of the Holy Spirit, and the role of the Father, as we call him, you know, the, the concept of the Trinity, and so this becomes a real issue for them. Now, Arius was a presbyter in Alexandria, um, same place where Athanasius was. These are two important names. And Arius literally believed, uh, and, and they'll use a term, a phrase, there was when he was not, in reference to Jesus. Hmm. In other words, he was not co-eternal with the Father. And this is a real problem <laughs> because that somehow diminishes and makes Christ a created being. In other words, if he was not always there with the Father from the beginning, then he came into existence at a point in time, thereby making him a created being and therefore less than God himself, the Father. Uh, mm. So this obviously is problematic. Now, I, I, you know, in, in preparation, we talked about there's a gentleman by the name Eusebius, because Arius was not a bishop. He was a presbyter, so he was just like a regular preacher guy. So he didn't have the weight to go and speak in front of this council. Uh, so Eusebius tried, and Eusebius, on his behalf, tried to articulate this clear, logical expression of what this all means and what it's so forth. But literally, he was shouted down with, with the phrase, blasphemy, blasphemy, heresy, and lies. Um, so no one wanted to accept this. And it was here that the famous Athanasius, who stands up to him, uh, and he says that this was always the case. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, gets codified um, at this council. Mm. So mm. out of the negative aspect, one would say negative aspect of Arianism, which gave a diminished view or created being view of Christ, out of this emerges the power of the Trinity. And it has been from, we know it was there in the beginning, we can see it, but it is here that it is ensconced in Christian, not only from tradition, but also orthodox ideas that without the Trinity, Christianity is not Christianity. This is central now teaching that there's a concept of the Trinity, the three and one. Now, so, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, this is the case. Now, it's not as simple as that because there are going to be like a ton more questions that come in various councils down the road um, asking about this. But this really is the starting point for, uh, I think, a fulcrum, a central axiom from which everything is built on, the Trinity. Gotcha. So Arius's view was that Jesus, when he was born of a Virgin Mary, it was the first time he entered the scene. No, we don't know when he entered as Jesus. It could have happened in some point in time, right? Hmm. So we're not talking about the physical Jesus being born here. What we're talking about, the, the concept is that the Trinity has been co-eternal. That means from, from the beginning of negative eternity to positive eternity, God and Father, Son, and Spirit have always existed. Right. Existence has always been there. But what Aries said was there was a point in time that God said, oh, there's something coming. I need to create Jesus in order to fulfill something else. Ah, uh, interesting. So that's in the divine Godhead, Jesus emerges. It hmm. comes into existence. This is not his physical existence. Okay, interesting. Okay? That's a really interesting, uh, yeah, and I think that's, a, uh, you know, a lot of these heresies, <laughs> I probably shouldn't say this on the show, but I find out, I'm like, hmm, 
I kind of see where they're coming from with some of this stuff. You're like, because you kind of think like, well, God, Jesus is the begotten son of God. He's the son of God. Of course, at some point, I just don't really think about it like shooting that far back into time. But like, oh, yeah, he's the begotten son of God. But this is saying like the way we use those terms are definite. First off, is incomprehensible. Two, he's the son of God, but he's not like the... I don't know what the way to say like the the way I'm the son of my the father. Progeny. That's right. He's, He's not, not the, the progeny. progeny yeah. of, okay. and, and this is important to understand. You know <clears throat> that sometimes uh, terminology gets in the way, and and you hit an important point where there's the what we call the ineffable quality. Sometimes there's no real language in which to properly describe the fullness. I mean, we're talking about yeah. God. So what language, uh, human language, is good enough to com- completely grasp all those pieces? Right. Mm-hmm. So this is why. When we look at it, we think that, you know, it, it's important to say we kind of have some boundary conditions on our language. But I do think the concept of Trinity is quite clear. I think that even if you don't have a, uh, what I would say, a, a full, deep theological understanding, there seems to be something about that unity between Father, Son, and Spirit that is that we've been taught. But I think also is clear as a teaching in the Bible when we see the expressions of the Father, the expressions of the Son, the expressions of the Holy Spirit. Um, and we... And would yeah. you say er- earthly Jesus was, uh, you know, he set aside, we, we've said it before on the show, he set aside the power of his divinity, he humbled himself, mm-hmm. and he took on that role. It right. doesn't deny who he's been since the beginning. That's right. His activity as the divine capacities that he has and attributes, he set them aside it doesn't mean that he was he lost them. It doesn't mean that he doesn't know how to use them. What it simply means was he depended upon his life as the human Christ rather than as the divine savior, right? Mm. So that's the distinction. Now, to be quite clear, this concept of, of Arius's is kind of rooted in what we call a tradition called Gnosticism. And in mm. Gnosticism, we had this notion that Spirit things were perfect at the very top, the very highest, and that was God himself. And then what happens was there are what we called emanations that come down from there. And that some Gnostic traditions have Jesus as one of the set, like the first emanation. So he's really close to God. He's as close as you can get without being God, but he is a created being by God to do some activities because God himself cannot do activities on earth. Some lower level being has to enter into earth to do these activities. And why is that the case? Because this lower level being is closer to this physical world or the flesh world. Um, God is pure spirit and cannot participate. So they had to have a lesser being get in here, come to this earth and do the activities. Now, this is some sort of Gnostic tradition. And I think, uh, you know, there's various versions of Gnosticism, to be quite honest, and little nuances along the way. But this concept of less and less beings getting closer to earth. And then when you really get to earth and you talk with human beings, they really are the bottom of the barrel, right? Because they're pure flesh. And therefore, you know, that's what Christ came for to save them and, you know, make them whole and so forth. And then bring them, elevate them back up into the, into the spiritual realm. Mm. So it's, it's, it's a coherent form of thought. But it, I don't think it has any basis in anything other than, you know, the fact that logically it's coherent. But um, it then denies a bunch of other things that we want to to participate in, which is the Trinity and so forth. So, so yeah. even in 325, they're working this stuff out. And so this is roughly, you know, 300 years since Jesus 
uh, walk the earth. Yep. Uh, you know, 300 years, that's a pretty long time. That's longer than, you know, the United States has been around, really. You know, <laughs> so you think about, like, yeah, there's been a, there was a gap. Like, you kind of think of these councils, like, all right, Paul died, and then they all got together. Like, no, a lot of time uh, was in between this. So that that's really interesting. Um, and so they they called Arius, uh, you know, heretic. So what happens to Arius after this? Does he just like, well, I guess I'm out of the club? Or? Yeah, you can look him up on Wikipedia. His his end is not so good. I think he ends up somewhere in Constant. He stays in Constantinople. Um, he he dies. He um, starts a uh, podcast. He has, he has a horrible death. Actually, <laughs> I don't want to try and describe it on the air. Um, and it's it's not good. And then everybody said, see that guy. We told you, you know, his death kind of like illustrates why you know he was. You know, selling garbage to the world. Um, Interesting. And I don't think that was Eris's issue, though. The problem was, I think he misunderstood. But um, the church had to stand strong on the fact that Jesus Christ is God, fully God. They could not give that up. Uh, Athanasius won the day. His reputation grew. And unfortunately for Arius, um, he had a very sad ending. What, What's why, interesting... Uh- well, go ahead. I was no, going to ask, why Athanasius? Why was he the one that Athanasius was the one who spoke boldly um, about the Trinity, the concept of the Trinity, and spoke very um, eloquently on the fact that there is this concept of Trinity uh, whereby Jesus Christ is co-equal with God in every way, shape, and form, the Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, to, to be quite clear, the Spirit isn't talked about much at this point in terms of the role of the Holy Spirit, because until they clear up where Jesus stands, only then can they subsequently talk about where the Spirit stands. Um, mm-hmm. So that's interesting. Um, what's The interesting side note is that many of the... Uh, are you familiar with the, the Goths and the Visigoths? Are you familiar yeah, with those? I, I took a class in college <laughs> called Jews of Medieval Spain. Okay. Um, that's the only thing I remember is the names. <laughs> I <laughs> so barely passed is, it. Yeah, I think these were like Germanic tribes uh, from, from that part of the world. Uh, but during the, I think... 500s to 600s, they adopted um, Aryan Christianity. And mm. and so they were, some of the parts of when they're fighting Rome, because the gospel, they attack Rome, they really are fighting a religious battle in the back as a subtext to some of the, you know, just, they're not simply attacking Rome, you know, for, you know, to, 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 to defeat their enemy. They actually are also believing that they're in a different path type of Christianity than the Roman Christianity. Wow. Um, so yeah. And, and, and Constantinople um, Christianity. So it's interesting. Interesting that- reason to start a war and be like, is begotten not made? No, there was when he was not. Go to bed. You know, yeah. like that's not the quite battle cry you yeah. think, but it, it, it's a subtext. It's not the primary right, right. reason, but it is. It is something that they were very different, and that that motivated them in, in some way. Um, yeah. Yeah. So some of the other things that took place at Constantinople of of interest were the date of Easter. When when should Easter be? Celebrated, and people were some people were celebrating on a Thursday, some people on a Friday, some people at different parts of the year. And what they did was they mandated a uniform observance for the date of Easter. And so, you know, that that's an important thing as far as I'm concerned, right? We have that's part of the unity and the continuity that they brought about as well. Did they call it Easter back then, or was it far Resurrection I Sunday? <laughs> I, think <it's, laughs> I think it's called Easter. Yeah. It's so easy. did so did Constantinople send out like to all the the priests like hey here's a here's a list of the agenda here are the sponsors you know here's our activities for the afternoon like how did they you know did they come ready to discuss this or they're just like hey let's talk and see what what happens no no they came they came with specific things to talk about right there there was a long list of things that they were going to adjudicate on they mm-hmm. knew that was the purpose of this right. I mean, go back to its overall purpose, set doctrine right, uh, bring about unity, 
uh, ensure how to how to deal with foreign ideas emerging, how to deal with uh, new things, new ideas emerging as well. Um, yeah, this was planned. This was planned and well orchestrated. This wasn't just like hey. Let's get together next week and we'll see what happens. Yeah, yeah. There was yeah. purpose in this. Not There's like our purpose. podcast. Yeah, no. There, yeah, we're just going <laughs> along wherever you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think the the other the, the last piece I think was is um, minor laws, rules. How were they going to handle these differences? Because you know, if you live in if you live in North Africa, there's some local laws that you may want to abide by that are not binding in terms of Christian values, but they are binding in terms of you you live in that area, part of the world, you, you behave in a particular way. Gotcha. Um, or if you're in Greece, or if you're in Rome, if you're in Constantinople, you know, yeah. um, Armenia and so forth. Uh, and then, of course, finally, canon law, which is we're talking about here, but, you know, from church, how does the council, mm-hmm. you know, how does the church operate? How, what are the things that are important for it from a polity perspective? So gotcha. those are some of the things in first, uh, and those are the, some of the big ones. But again, there was, I think there's something like 190 or 200 things that they w- had planned to discuss. Oh, wow. So the next uh, council that comes up is the First Council of Constantinople uh, from 381 AD. And a little behind the scenes found out that I was wrong. This is not the council that Constantinople launched. It's based his named after the, the city Constantinople, not Constantine. The person. The guy. Yeah, I gotcha. <laughs> a little confusing. I, you know, I'm saving everybody else the trouble of wondering what's going on. I fall on my sword. So what happened at this one? Okay, so this one was quite similar. I mean, you have you have the the same issues. Some of the similar issues are showing up, but here the council again. What the first thing they did was they they approved and they authenticated and validated the Nicene Creed. So that is the creed that pops out out of constant out of out of the Council of Nicaea. They're in full agreement, right? That. Th- that what was taught and adopted there was right and 100% true. So here we go with the unity aspect of things right away, right? So that that's important. Um, and then we have the, the second thing that I think was important was the idea of the one substance, which is now going to be critical going forward, that, that there is one substance. God is one substance, not multiple substances, and therefore is, is there's that unity within Father, Son, and Spirit, right? But at the same time, they wanted to ensure that the oneness of God did not turn them into one God in the sense of Mm, one person. The integrity of the Father, Son, and Spirit was still going to be critical for the operation of the body of believers. So this is important um, and a critical distinction. Um, So that's what's important here, right? Yes, one substance, one God, but at the same time, the personality of Father, Son, and Spirit are not lost. Gotcha. And yeah. so the council before, the Nicene one, they decided who Jesus was or how he coexisted with, within the Trinity. And this one, did they cover the Holy Spirit? Is that the kind of like it built off of that? Or what was the difference between, why are they doing this again if they just did this, I guess is what I'm asking. Well, remember, it's now, what, 60 years later, probably 55 years later, uh, whatever the math is. And what you're having here is, is again, ideas start to worm their way in. Things, people start to ask different kinds of questions. Um, and therefore, new ideas start to promulgate themselves. And of course, it is important to say what we did in 325 was absolutely right. It stands true. So this is now what you're building upon and giving credibility to the original and the most important 
council and saying, this was right and we're going to stick with it. So this mm. is how you start building a tradition, an intellectual tradition, a strong tradition of right and wrong and ensuring that you have continuity of thought. Because the moment if you were to change this, what would the church actually do then? It would be lost. You got to have continuity. And this is extremely, extremely important going forward. So I think that's the difference, and I think that's something that we need to realize that they need to have continuity. And because if you think about it, that idea to this day is still the adopted orthodox position. We do not diverge from that. So, you know, they they Mm. can't be jumping around left, right, and center, so to speak. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. So this is, again, now at this council, the Trinitarian doctrine takes even greater shape and form. You've got the Holy Spirit now being part of that conversation. They've settled the doctrines, Father and Son. It becomes relatively easy to adopt the Holy Spirit aspect into the same level and say that distinction is there in terms of personality, but the unity of substance is one, one God. Gotcha, gotcha. So they're, they're, they're codifying or solidifying that Trinitarian view. Um, all three part, and then go ahead. No, no, I was going to say this is important. I mean, th- th- this is a central doctrine. This is what makes Christianity in of itself unique. It is not bound by um, you know some external factors. It is it is part and parcel of what it means to be uh, Trinity. Is part and parcel of what makes Christianity unique. It makes it powerful. It makes it different, and it makes it uh, I, I, for me a sense of completeness. Yeah. And then uh, they also covered the Arianism controversy. Had uh, you know, had his he left the last council. He didn't stop talking. Clearly, what happened? What was? How did he come back into this one? <laughs> well, what again? So again, Arian's ideas uh, are understandably, as you just said uh, previously, it's kind of easy to kind of see where Aries is coming from because of the complexity of trying to understand the nature of the Trinity. And we yeah. see that throughout this. We're going to see this through the, even the other councils coming up. But that complexity doesn't mean that we should th- throw it out and and adopt an Aryan position because to me, the Aryan position is the easy one. Well, he must be less than. God the Father is like the, at the top dog. The Son is second. The Spirit is third. And we can yeah. align them. And because if we look around in nature, we see things like one, two, three. You know, it, it is hard to think of the th- that unity and the distinctions simultaneously uh, existing. So it we've got to be able to um, maintain that. Now, so again, it starts to worm its way in. Like I said, we have the we have Visigoths and Goths thinking like even 300 years later from here, or 250 years later from here, believing that the Aaron controversy is correct. So mm. again, it worms its way back in, and the church has to continuously stamp it out in one way, shape, or form, because on the one hand, they want to maintain the integrity of the Trinity, and on the other hand, they want to m- ensure the integrity uh, of the individuality as well. Um, so that continues to pop up and, and show itself. Um, one of the councils, canons, gave Constantinople precedence of honor over, okay, other... <laughs> Right, so this is something that's really important that takes place now. Now we're talking about church polity sort of thing. Uh, the council then gives the Bishop of Constantinople precedence and honor over all the other bishops except the Bishop of Rome. So what do you hmm. see starting to emerge here? You're starting to see that the council is now saying the power is p- firstly in Rome to the Bishop of Rome 
and then secondly to the Bishop of Constantinople. And that means all the other bishops start to create their hierarchy and align to different, you know, like start to see themselves, hey, where do I stand? Now, mm. of course, <laughs> right, what does that lead to? Well, in my reading of history, church history, what we're seeing here is how the, the patriarch at Rome, the person we call the Pope nowadays, starts to take on more immense power in terms of who is going to be able to be the, a, a sort of loosely a final authority uh, because he ultimately is the most powerful bishop. Again, a bishop like the other ones, but for somehow, because of his physical, geographical location, because of who he's tied to, the city of Rome and the emperor being there and so forth, I, I think you're starting to see the emergence of that important individual. And that's where historically, in my opinion, that's my reading of history, where the Catholic Church starts to take on a more important role or the Church of the West. So gotcha. I think that's important. So this council established the... The Bishop of Constantinople was basically vice president to the bishop in Rome, or <laughs> not that they ran together, or something like that. But um, Bishop of Rome, he he wasn't the Pope at that point. It was just the Bishop of Rome. Is that that's right? right? That's right. Yeah, Pope is. I think the term means father, um, Papa. So oh. um, yeah, and, and we know that from the beginning. I think we remember this from our first church history uh, session we went through. That um, he was the first among equals was the term that was used, and being mm -hmm. first among equals means um, he's still first, <laughs> right? So is um, this precedence? Is, yeah, this is like the first time we've seen some kind of like head of the church, the Christian church since since the disciples. Be, like I know a lot of people point to Peter as maybe the first pope in quotes, but he wasn't. Um, and you know, Paul wrote most of the, the scriptures that we have in the new Testament, but Paul was like, I'm not the head, you know, who's, um, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on the name. James, not James, uh, Apollos, you know, who's Paul's, who's a Paul, you know, they're oh, very okay, much man. just like, I'm not trying to, I'm trying to lead you church, follow me as a follow Christ, but I'm not, Christ is the head, we're the body. This is, seems like to be the first time we've seen some kind of like power structure. Is that right? Well, so so yes, at that level, at the highest level, yes, I agree with you. But you've already got bishops, you've got presbyters, you've got local preachers, you've got people, individual leaders who have leadership positions in different parts of the church. And and Paul wrote about different individuals. He wrote about you right. know you know elders and and what role they should have and what skills they should have, what talents they should have, and so forth. So I don't think that's we, we have seen the organization of an organized church already starting to take shape and form. But I think what we're seeing here, though, is as it relates to these geographically displaced places, you have these bishops over large areas, um, uh, large territories, and, you know, hey, I'm the big guy. I control this part of the world. And therefore, if I'm the biggest guy, Rome, and I can control most of the world, then I'm going to be top dog, so to speak. And I, and I use these terms in fun, not necessarily in a technical mm -hmm. sense, but I think you're starting to see the role then that that leader can take. So if he says, you know, this is what we should do, this is what we should say, this is how we should proceed, that's taken very seriously because the role in which that person has, right? So again, let's flip back really quickly. We remember that Arius was just a presbyter, basic preacher, couldn't speak in at the council 
and Eusebius, who was a bishop, had to speak on his behalf to articulate the position. So Interesting. You, yeah, yeah, so in order to speak up and get a, a voice at the table, you've got to be a somebody. And we're starting to see that, that, that table start to organize itself around who is going to sit at the head of the table and who will sit on the sides of the table and who may not be invited to the table at all. So I'm just saying that from a polity perspective, that's what we're starting to see em- emerge here. But Rome being the place... That's that's really interesting. Okay, so yeah, you start to see the seeds of the power structure being formed, but uh, not quite as um, organized as it will become. Um, well, we've covered you know a quick recap in the first two. Uh, we didn't get into all three. I think this is a probably a good place to stop first two and we'll do another episode on a few more. but I, I like being able to take our time and dive into like the actual, content of what they were discussing and, and I, I learned a lot today about you know the Arian, arianism can't say it i can say ecumenical can't say arianism but <laughs> um so yeah tune in next time and we'll, we'll dive a little bit more we're going to go through all seven of these uh with another podcast or two uh any any closing thoughts no i'm just looking forward to the rest of them there's so much to learn here yeah great great stuff so uh if you haven't heard part one go back and listen to that and we'll be back with part three uh return of the king we can call it and uh dra- well, that one dragged out for a long time so we can pack too in long, all the five long. of them so <laughs> we'll see you next time thank you bye-bye